Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Eddie Albron, a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. Today, our guest is Professor Bernardo Sabatini, the Alice and Rodman W. Moorhead III Professor of Neurobiology at Harvard University. In this episode, we will talk about overcoming technological barriers, scientific bloodlines, and when the music industry meets science. All this and more coming up. We're here with Dr. Bernardo Sabatini, Professor of Neurobiology at Harvard. Thank you for speaking with us today, Dr. Sabatini. My pleasure. Thank you. So you study synapses, everything ranging from development to biophysical computation to spines to behavior to synapse-related pathology. And your phenomenal work in the last two decades or so has really pushed the field of neuroscience in terms of unraveling the role of this most basic unit in the brain. But before we do all that, why don't we start a bit with your background? So where did you grow up? What was your path to becoming a scientist? So I'm a, I'm a New Yorker, and I grew up there, was born there and raised there. And um, I come from a family that's full of scientists and medical doctors and, uh, and all Argentinians. And so my parents' family in Argentina, both sides, they were very much into education and they very much valued having uh, strong careers that one could rely on as a safety net. So there are lots and lots of doctors. Uh, and then among them, there were some scientists scattered around. And so we grew up in this household where we very much valued talking about, uh, about biology, talking about science, talking about very wide-ranging um, subjects. Great. So, yeah, as, as you mentioned, science is uh, definitely in your bloodline. So um, uh, your brother David's a professor at MIT, and he studies the mTOR pathway, and your father himself, a very esteemed uh, scientist, uh, and actually chaired the cell bio department at NYU for uh, quite some time. So um, just going a little more on that, uh, what was it like, you know, growing up in that environment surrounded by, you know, such amazing scientific minds, and even now uh, when you guys gather uh uh, together for the holidays or whatever. What's that like? So it was fantastic as a kid. And, um, you know, obviously when you're a kid, you don't think very much about who your parents are. They're just your parents, right? And so I certainly didn't think of my dad as, uh, as some famous scientist or anything more than, uh, you know, the guy who, who grilled the steaks. And <laughs> How were the steaks? <laughs> steaks were good. good. Tradition of Argentinians making good steaks. Um, but I think you know what what my dad brought and and my mom as well was uh, teaching us that it was very important to sort of have control over your own life, and so they very much valued the fact that as scientists and my mom used to run her own business as a pathologist, a clinical pathologist, that they both you know controlled their own lives day to day, and my dad in particular emphasized to us how wonderful it was that every day he could choose what to think about and he could choose what problems to explore. And that remarkably, somebody paid him to do that. You know, when you step back and think about that, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. And so my brother and I were taught early on that, you know, not, not to worry about money. That was kind of a luxury for us. Um, and that, uh, that instead we should think about what excited us, what, what, what we were passionate about, and, and what we really dreamed to think about. And so that naturally leads one to think about science, and we, we valued it tremendously. So it definitely sounds like your family instilled in you a value for education, <laughs> which encouraged you to do an MD-PhD with right. uh, Wade Regeer. And uh, there you studied synaptocalcium and calcium channels. 
So uh, what was your pathway to starting to study at the Synapse? How did you get there in the first place? Yeah, so I actually got there in a pretty roundabout way. I was uh, within a family of biologists. I was the outlier in that what I liked was math and engineering and computer science. And so I was really into computers, into applied math. And in college, I studied engineering and particularly was interested in robotics and artificial intelligence. And now you guys are at Stanford at, in, in sort of the heyday of machine learning and artificial intelligence. It's pretty amazing what's going on. But, you know, in the, in the late 80s when I was in college, uh, it was really quite, quite primitive. And the approaches that were being taken towards artificial intelligence were, in retrospect, wrong. You know, they were sort of trying to figure out algorithms for how the brain works instead of sort of exploiting statistics. And so I kind of grew dissatisfied with what I was doing and naturally started thinking about, well, how does, how does the brain work? And how do we do the amazing things that, that we do? And that's what led me to neuroscience. And actually, my father was incredibly helpful there because I didn't know what I was doing. I was a computer science guy, and he introduced me to some neurobiologists who were very generous and took me into their labs over the summers, and I started to learn a little bit about what does it mean to actually do biology? And, uh, and so it's kind of a gradual transition from, from engineering towards biology. You know, medicine is something that I'm, I'm happy that I did. It's, um, medical school is the only place in which you learn human physiology, and that's really quite special. And you also get an entire organismic view of, of, the, of the whole body of an entire human. And again, that's, that's unique. You don't learn that in graduate school. But I'm not sure that at any point I was really convinced that I would practice medicine. I think I viewed it more from the sort of intellectual and educational exercise. And so when I was ready then to actually start graduate school um, in my, my third year of the MD-PhD, uh, Wade Regeer had just arrived at Harvard a year before. Um, like me, he came from a more techy sort of applied background. He was an applied physics PhD at Caltech. Uh, he liked to think quantitatively about how synapses and how the brain worked. And so we had sort of a natural affinity in what we what we like to think about it in terms of what we found to be satisfying answers. So uh, at that time, what was the field of uh, synapse science? What did that look like? Yeah, very, very different than today. And I think it's even hard to sort of step back and realize what it was like. Um, so there was a lot known about what synapses could do in the sense of signaling from one cell to the other and there were certain forms of short-term and a couple of forms of long-term plasticity that were explored but very basic things were not known and so until Wade's work as a postdoctoral fellow there really had been um, and, and the work actually in his own lab there had really been no studies imaging for example calcium at mammalian synapses uh, everything that we thought was true about how a vesicle um, fuses with the membrane, how it's released, how that's triggered by calcium. Almost all of that came from studies of invertebrates, from squid giant synapse, from crayfish. And there was a lot of assumptions that these things carried forth into the mammalian system. And Wade really pushed forward um, the techniques necessary to directly address those. So he was really on the cutting edge of thinking about calcium signaling, and, and I was drawn to that. There was great possibility. Um, but, you know, in those days, we, we studied what in retrospect might seem like very small problems, you know, really sort of detailed characterization of small steps of synaptic transmission at one synapse. But those problems were things that were just totally wide open. We didn't know if a mammalian synapse operated like a squid synapse. So you mentioned earlier that you never really thought medicine was definitely going to be in your future. But how do you think medicine has helped inform your research and helped you become a better scientist? 
I, I think it's had a very strong impact and I'm very thankful for it. Uh, one is certainly in thinking about diseases. And um, my lab doesn't explicitly work on disease, but yet whenever possible, we try to make a connection towards the disease. And so for example, for a while, we were studying the tubular sclerosis complex uh, signaling pathway, which is one that's implicated in autism. I had seen some kids with TSC when I was doing my rotation in, uh, in my pediatrics rotation over at Children's Hospital Boston. And so I sort of knew what that disease was. I think that helped me study that pathway. Um, I'm a little bit more familiar with the pharmacology that's used to treat human diseases, neuropsychiatric diseases. And so um, I remember having many conversations with my dad, actually, when I was a kid. He would ask me, you know, how do antipsychotic drugs work? How do neuroleptics work? He was interested in it. And bottom line is we don't actually know how they work. But I think that some of the things that we're working on now, thinking about dopamine actions and thinking about pathways within the basal ganglia, will impact on disease. So it's a little bit easier, I think, for me to make those links because of my background. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, this overview of human physiology is an amazing thing. And so we're neuroscientists. We, we love to study the brain. We're fascinated by it. But the bottom line is that there's a ton of interesting questions in biology. And part of the fun part about biology is being able to make those links. And so I get, you know, equally excited when I talk to somebody who uh, studies some ion channel in the kidney that appears in both places. And, and you know, it's, it's fun that way. Great. Well, uh, carrying on the momentum from uh, your work with Wade, you did your postdoc with the legendary Carl Svoboda, uh, where you continued your research on synaptic calcium and developed actually um, some amazing imaging techniques to help visualize uh, calcium in neurons and uh, the calcium channel activity itself. Um, in particular, in a 2000 Nature paper, you combined two-photon calcium imaging with what you guys termed optical fluctuation analysis. Um, to ultimately deduce number and properties of voltage-sensitive calcium channels within single spines. Could you tell us a little bit about the technique itself, um, how it works, and uh, uh, particularly the hurdles that it, it overcame for you guys? Yeah, so, so when I got to Carl's lab, I was similarly fortunate in that there was another explosion that was just occurring as it happened in Wade's lab, and this was you know, the advent of two-photon microscopy. Of course, the microscope had been invented around 1990, and the first applications in neuroscience started appearing around 1994, 1995, but it was just catching on. So when I started my postdoc in Carl's lab in 1999, Carl was one of the few people who really had functioning two-photon microscopes, right? And these were all home-built home machines. And, um, and, and so he was... He and you know, Rafa used to Columbia and a few other people were just beginning to probe calcium signaling in the postsynaptic terminal, right, in the dendritic spine. And you know, now you see spines everywhere, and you see calcium transients and whatever. But I'll tell you, you know, the first time you sit down at a two-photon microscope and kind of scan through a brain and see a dendrite and spines, it's really a beautiful thing, and it's very inspiring. And I remember that in Carl's lab. And so that whole field was just opening up. And so again, very basic things we didn't know. Does a single spine operate as an isolated biochemical compartment, right? We thought that the spine was the fundamental unit of synaptic plasticity and that by compartmentalizing signaling, it provided the cellular substrate for that compartmentalized signaling. So, but that had never been tested. So that was a very basic thing, again, that we could test. We could do it biophysically. We could do it quantitatively. That paper that you mentioned in Nature was just a really fun, was a fun study because this question of how many proteins are present in a volume that's one-tenth of a femtoliter is hard to quantify, right? 
And just by numbers, you think that it's gonna, it's gonna be very small numbers, right? And that because of that, then stochastic properties are gonna start to matter for signaling. And that paper you know, really demonstrates that. You can show by repeated analysis of this one structure how stochasticity matters in biological signaling. And then we were able to use some math to, you know, to pull some numbers out of it. But, um, but again, it was those days where just huge, wide open questions. And so you could just look at the structures, ask very basic things, and do studies that these days probably look incredibly simplistic, but they yeah, were, were informative. And for me personally, I learned an enormous amount from, from Carl directly, you know, how to, how to build these microscopes, how to think formally about optics um, together. Uh, Carl, Tom Palagrudo, a grad student, and I wrote this program called Scan Image, which uh, you know basically changed the way people approached microscopy. Because in the old days, microscopes, including the two-photon microscope in Carl's lab, were very sophisticated pieces of custom electronics that had to do sophisticated things, digital, digital signal processing, and so forth. And it was a major pain. If they broke, you had to go get the double E guy to come and fix it because nobody knew what was going on. So we moved all that to software. We put it all on the CPU. And that really helped sort of the explosion of two-photon microscopy because then you could do relatively simple mechanical hardware, simple optics, and download this software and get going. And so it, it was really fun to have an impact on a field that way. So something that really strikes me is uh, the breadth of your work from bridging engineering to biology, but then also from looking at very fundamental small things like the synapse to even systems-level neuroscience. So um, how do such projects, like different projects, develop in your lab, and how do you balance being at so many different levels of biology? Mm -hmm. So sometimes that can be difficult. Now, to be fair, you're taking a historical perspective on the lab. And it's not as if everything is actually all going on at once. So there's been an evolution in the lab where we started with very biophysical questions about small compartments, and we've sort of been building up towards more cellular level and then towards circuits and more systems. So right now, there actually isn't a whole lot of signaling work going, going on in the lab. There is some, but not a whole lot, and there certainly isn't a lot of single-spine calcium imaging going. So there's been an evolution in the lab, which reflects that you, know, you get bored after a while. And you go on, every five years, you kind of want to do something a little different, and that happens to me too. But the honest answer as to why we can have such a broad lab is that uh, is that that reflects directly the talent of the people in the lab. You know, I'm very lucky that I have just amazing postdocs and grad students in the lab, and so because of that, we can talk about science at a high level and not about every little detail. But if I had to worry about every detail of every control from systems type questions all the way down to biophysical questions, there's no way we could do it. And so that's, that's, uh, that's I'm very lucky that way. You know, the engineering side is something that, um, you know, I've very much been pushing because that's my background. And so that's a little bit of what I bring to the lab is that um, I create technology to make it possible for these amazing people to do experiments and then we iterate on these things together and so that's been nice that's kind of my niche within the lab i'm not really trained as a biologist that came much later in grad school and so forth um, and and i like making technology so that's that's how the lab operates 
So um, you mentioned this transition from the more biophysical to the circuit and cellular. So focusing on the latter stuff, your lab recently had a nature paper demonstrating a direct GABAergic pathway from uh, basal ganglia to frontal cortex, um, and in particular that these neurons, some of which are chat positive, um, co-release GABA ex- as well. So uh, how does this discovery change the way uh, we've traditionally thought about the basal ganglia and its role? I think it has several, um, it, it, it requires us to rethink a few models of the basal ganglia. Um, and I'll say that its true biological and physiological impact is still unknown and is something we're studying. But first of all, it demonstrates that there are pathways out of the basal ganglia that don't go through thalamus. Okay, so that there are ways in which this nucleus, like the globus pallidus, can directly control cortex, and particularly these frontal areas uh, of cortex that are not, not necessarily thought of as being involved in sensory motor processing. Um, so that's, that's one thing that we need to consider in models. And so it, it, allows it, it, it allows the possibility that maybe the direct and the indirect pathway out of the basal ganglia don't necessarily have to have opposite effects, that they can each have their own unique signaling capabilities. The second thing that I think is important, and this is something we're actively looking at now, is getting back to this question as to how do antipsychotic drugs work. You know, antipsychotic drugs are all modulators of type 2 dopamine receptors. And if you look at, for example, a PET scan of a human brain, the vast majority of type 2 dopamine receptors are in the striatum. That's where they are, right? Yet, if you think about the treatment of psychotic symptoms, you think about things that alter cortical function, in particular prefrontal cortex and so forth. And so how do you link those two things together, I think was a bit mysterious. And it's been quite hard to find direct effects of D2 receptors in cortex, although they are described. And so this pathway is actually a one synapse hop from D2 receptors to prefrontal cortex. They receive, these cells receive inputs from D2 receptor-rich indirect pathway neurons and then go straight to prefrontal cortex. And so I think that might be an important link, and we're, we're trying to pursue that. Yeah, certainly. So yeah, on that topic, you know, since these are inhibitory projections to frontal cortex, and as you mentioned, um, you know, this pathway is mediated by dopamine, um, uh, receptors. So it it's becomes clear that there are serious implications here for um, translational neuroscience and targeted therapies that involve dopamine and targeting these particular cell yeah. types. Yes, I think that's right. And so we're exploring that on, on a few fronts. Um, one is, as we mentioned, in relation to antipsychotics. You know, could this be a pathway by which antipsychotics uh, influence cortical function? If so, can we find drugs that directly target these cells? If they are the conduit, maybe we can hit them directly, and that's something we're looking at. The other thing that we're interested in is this pathway seems to be a disinhibitory pathway for cortex, okay? And if so, it might actually be more generally relevant to even something like Parkinson's disease, in which it seems that, for example, deep brain stimulation of the subthalamic nucleus works for Parkinson's disease because it retrogradely activates cortex. That's something that uh, uh, Viviana Gradinaro and Carl Diesroff's lab showed a few years ago in, in, a, in, a, in a rodent uh, study. And so this pathway might be another way to sort of more generally disinhibit cortex and bring it back online in a Parkinsonian patient. And so these are things that we're trying to explore now, of course, in animal models. Um, but then when the time is right, hopefully collaborate with some clinicians and think about human, human studies. So something that I would, I would love to go back to because I think it's just particularly fascinating about your lab is technique development. So I think a lot of times you see 
Um, a lot of great labs are applying the innovative techniques, but clearly you're one of the labs that is actually developing those techniques. So um, in general, what is the motivation for this? It, what's the order? Is it you develop a new technique and that leads to new scientific questions, or you want to answer an interesting scientific question so you realize you have to come up with a new technique? I think it can go both ways. And so sometimes we're a little bit criticized for doing work that isn't necessarily hypothesis-driven. And, and, and sometimes my answer to those criticisms is a little bit flippant in which I say, okay, well, my hypothesis is that if we look at this thing, we'll find something interesting. <laughs> and that's often true. I mean, if you think about the way biology advances, there are only a few examples in which somebody has this eureka moment in which they have some genius insight. And you can think of those. For example, RNA being, to, being able to act as an enzyme, right? That's kind of a crazy thing. And once you accept that, then you, you discover amazing biology. But most of the other times, it's you create a technique that allows you to ask questions that nobody's asked before, and then you learn things. And so it, it goes both ways. Sometimes we have biological need and we work on techniques. Other times we start with techniques. So for example, the super resolution two photon microscope, that was something that, you know, just kind of looking around the lab, we thought, oh, well, we can build one of these and let's do it, right? Let's see what we see. And we built it and we saw, you know, cool structures in the spine. Now, to be honest, I don't think we ever used it for heavy duty biological discovery because <laughs> it was kind of like a technique that wasn't motivated by a bio biological problem. And so in fact, that microscope in the lab is now dismantled. So was that like one conversation where you're like, hey, let's do this, or was it a, a development over time? It sounds like it was a moment where you're excited about something <laughs> and just sort of jumped on. Yeah, it. so it was something that we, we were excited about. And uh, Jun Ding, who's now at Stanford, when he was in the lab, we talked about it a lot. And we, you know, we started working on it. And then this kid, uh, I call him a kid because he was so young at the time. Of course, he's a, you know, grown man with children, whatever, but Kevin, <laughs> Kevin Takasaki was a biophysics student who entered my office to ask me about a rotation, and I basically didn't let him leave. I was like, okay, <laughs> you're going to stay in the resolution microscope, and you're going to work with Joe, and, and luckily he signed on to it, and, and we built the machine, which I thought was quite a beautiful machine and gave some gorgeous images, but after Joe left the lab and after Kevin left the lab, it wasn't, it wasn't a technique that was driving forward biology in my lab, and so it died away. As opposed to, for example, the two-photon glutamate uncaging. That is something that we uh, pursued for a long time to get it to work right. It, it required us to really figure out how to use these compounds. We had the right software to control lasers correctly. We had to think hard about calibration of laser power and whatever else. But that was driven forward by our desire to really understand the functioning of a single postsynaptic terminal in isolation from its neighbors. And so we, we pushed forward on that for a strict biological need. And over time, we learned how to refine it. And, and, then, and then we learned what it was really good for. You know, once we had it working, we actually said, oh, wow, we thought it was good for this. It's really good for that. And it was a process. So both things happened. Awesome, great. Do you guys have particular uh, dedicated, I guess, technicians or more engineering-focused uh, members of the lab that uh, tend to assist on these projects, or is everyone in your lab kind of, uh, you know, goes both ways in terms of uh, tech savviness as well as having the biology? So background? it's a gradient. Um, I try to have the people in my lab come from very varied backgrounds. Um, I don't need to hire people that are synaptic physiologists or two-photon microscopists. Like, I, I can teach you that, right? Don't come to my lab for that. So I tend to hire people who 
have come, for example, from chemistry backgrounds, from biophysics. Uh, I have a guy in the lab now who's a real hardcore optics guy. I hire people from biochemistry. And the hope is that by bringing them all together, we can really do things that we wouldn't do alone. Now, everybody in the lab learns, I think they learn a lot of technology while they're here. I try to make sure that they really understand optics. And so every couple of years, I'll do a series of lectures on optics, starting from like Snell's law, going forward to, you know, designing microscopes and what. It's fun. I think it's fun for them. And, and we, we, I think by the time they leave the lab, everybody in the lab knows how to program, right? I mean, these days you really need to know how to do that. I insist that they do. And so they, they, they learn those things. And so people sometimes join the lab, they're a little bit timid about the technology. And, and I tell them, look, just, you know, get a screwdriver, take the thing apart and don't worry about it. <laughs> right. Eventually they get into it and they really, they really enjoy it. So a brief moment away from the science, we like to ask people some fun questions and something that seems particularly unique about your lab. I'm not sure how many scientists can say this, but we saw that a music video was filmed in your lab. Is That's that right. correct? Could you tell us a little <laughs> bit about that and how that all started? Yeah, so this came about because of R.P. Saunders, who was the first author on that nature paper that you mentioned earlier. He was a grad student in the lab. And R.P. is one of these people who's just like incredibly social and just like goes through all kinds of different parts of society. <laughs> uh, just, you know, just whole spectrum, right? Everybody. And he knew these people who, uh, I think he knew the guy who actually made the video as opposed to the band. The band was this band called Chairlift, which I didn't realize actually is kind of a pretty well-known band. And that video actually won some awards. It's the most oh, wow. video of the year. And so they, they were interested in, uh, in this song that, that they phrased as, a, as sort of a scientific love story. And they wanted a setting. And they approached RP. RP asked me, he's like, hey, you mind if my friends film a video in the lab? I was like, yeah, no big deal. I imagine there's going to be like one, do one guy show up with, you know, with a camcorder. Yeah. Like a whole production team came in. They shut down that half of the building half a day. I never asked Harvard about it. I'm sure they would have said no. And they spent hours in there filming the thing. And, and it was a lot of fun. And it's a lot of fun to watch the video. At some point, there's a scene that comes up where there's a PCR machine in the video it says Sabatini on the side of it. <laughs> You're a famous music musician now. <laughs> yeah. For our listeners, we'd highly recommend checking out this video. Yeah. <laughs> it's, on Fun. it's an interactive video. You sort of choose your own story as you go through it by hitting keys. It's kind of cool. Right. <laughs> Great. Um, well, in, in the last part of our interview here, could you give us a brief uh, preview of your upcoming talk as you come visit campus uh, soon now? Well, the honest answer to that is no, because I haven't prepared it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I honestly, I get very tired of giving the same talk again and again, so I try to freshen it up and make something new. But I think what I'll do is talk about basal ganglia and synaptic transmission in the basal ganglia, and I'll talk about some of these unexpected things that we've discovered over the last few years and speculate on what their impact is for the biology of an animal and, and, and for humans. And so hopefully I'll, I'll go through a series of levels from synapses to circuits and then maybe touch a little bit on, on behavior. Cool. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. We'd like to finish up really quick with just some rapid-fire questions. Um, don't have to think too long about them, but um, <laughs> starting off with, if you had unlimited resources, what scientific question would you pursue? I would switch fields and I would dedicate myself to machine brain interfaces and neural prosthetics. Go back to my roots in robotics and AI. Do you ever envision any form of collaboration or anything like that with uh, any neuroscientists that are pursuing those types of questions? 
Absolutely. And so I've had a lot of fun talking to uh, Krishna Shanoi, who was here in one of our named lectures recently, and I'm trying to uh, develop relationships that way. We're collaborating with a group of people who are working on thousand contact electrode systems and trying to get that data, and we're working on collaborations to think about the modeling of the data once it comes off and inference models and so forth. So I'm really into that. Uh, I'm not going to be the one who drives machine interfaces at this point, but I think that bringing a basal ganglia perspective to motor control is going to be very important for that field. Mm -hmm. Great. So a bit of an extra silly question here. Um, if you could be co-released with any transmitter, which would it be and why? <laughs> uh -huh. Dopamine, of course. <laughs> you win, reward, euphoria, what more would you <laughs> All right. And um, the last one that we have is, if not science, what would you be doing right now? Oh, boy. That's a, that's a really hard one. Uh, my artistic side was always in photography, and I really love doing that. Uh, my, I'm exhausted after so many years of work, says I'm going to go be on a beach somewhere <laughs> and just hunter every day and enjoy tropical life. Sounds like the good life. It does. <laughs> Sounds pretty great. <laughs> Almost as good as being in lab in science. <laughs> great. All right. Well, thanks so much for meeting with us today, uh, Dr. Sabatini. Uh, we really enjoyed it. Thank you. Take care. See you soon. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Dr. Okihide Hikosaka, Senior Researcher of the Laboratory of Sensory Motor Research at the NIH. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. NeuroTalk was founded by Erica Signor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Ada Yi, Luis Guillem, Eddie Alberon, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Jordan Sorokin, and myself, John Peters. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of NeuroTalk in our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org. Spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E west.org. You can also follow Neurite West on Twitter using our handle at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk. I'm John Peters.